chapter 5 is saying, here's the message that I preach. In chapter 6, the emphasis is, make sure that this message that I preach and that you preach is not hindered in any way. He's talking about how to hinder the gospel and really how not to hinder the gospel. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today, Pastor Steve is beginning a new series of lessons from God's Word. And you've probably already figured out our topic and our text. We have a lot of material to cover today, so let's get our Bibles and our minds ready for the class. Here's Pastor Steve. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We are continuing our study of 2 Corinthians and having finished examining the great truths that Paul presented about reconciliation in chapter 5, we begin this new chapter today, chapter 6. Now, the subject matter, as you recall, of chapter 5 was rather obvious. There were a lot of intricate truths within the chapter, but the basic message was this. Paul, in defending his life and ministry, in defending it because of the false accusations of teachers, false teachers, Paul explained to the Corinthians that the heart of his calling was to proclaim the ministry and the message of reconciliation. He taught that people can be reconciled to God. And verses 18 and 19 of chapter 5 sort of sum up what it's all about. He said, now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. It's through the death of Christ God is able to restore or reconcile or bring back sinners to himself. They once were separated from him by their sins, but they can be reconciled back to him because their sins were paid for by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That's the message that Paul proclaimed. And that's the subject matter of chapter 5. Essentially, that's it. But the meaning of chapter 6 is not so obvious. In fact, right at the very outset of this chapter, Paul makes a statement that is not that easy to understand. And in fact, at first glance, it seems even out of place, stating it to the Corinthians. Paul begins this chapter in verse 1. He says, working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, that may strike you as an odd statement to say to a church. It may cause you and should cause you to have some questions, important questions about this statement. For example, What did Paul mean? What does this actually mean to receive God's grace in vain? Is it possible that a church of believers could actually receive God's grace in vain? Or is Paul stating that he really doesn't believe that the bulk of the Corinthians were truly born again Christians? Is he saying that he appeals to them to really receive Christ as their Lord and Savior because their profession was false. These are some of the questions that we should have. And and we need to explore those questions and get into the text and understand what does it mean to receive God's grace in vain? If it's for believers, then that's very serious. Because does Paul mean that if it's for believers that we as believers could receive God's grace in vain? So let's think about this. Well, right off the bat, it's important to know that the Greek word that's translated in vain simply means empty. It means empty. The thought here is that the Corinthians were in danger of receiving God's grace without the intended results 
of receiving his grace. In other words, their response to his grace in some way made it worthless and unprofitable in their lives in terms of it producing its intended results. It was not accomplishing what God wanted it to accomplish in their lives. So what does Paul mean by this? Did he mean that it wasn't accomplishing salvation in their lives? Well, that's usually what we think of when we when we read in the Bible about an exhortation concerning receiving the grace of God. What probably comes to your mind at first is that they weren't saved. But I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, the Corinthians were a saved people for the most part. Now, let, let me clarify. No doubt some of the Corinthians were not truly saved. No, no doubt about that. Uh, True of any church, true of a church like ours. The majority of you have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. You've repented of your sins. You've embraced him. You believe that you're a sinner. He died for your sins and you've come in in simple faith, trusting in his death for your sins. But that's not true of everybody. There are people in our church, just like any evangelical church, who have never really come to Christ as Lord and Savior. We know that this had to be the case at Corinth, and we know this because false teachers, as you recall, had infiltrated into this church. Paul will later refer to them as false apostles, so they claimed to have some kind of apostolic authority. There were teachers who had come into the church, and they taught another gospel. They were not teaching the gospel of grace, and by their teaching, they confused even true believers. And that's why Paul will write at the end of this letter, chapter 13, verse 5, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, Examine yourselves. Now, you say that to people who it would be obvious that there would be some who need to be saved. So there's no question that that some of these people were not saved. However, Paul affirmed many times throughout first and second Corinthians that that he considered the bulk of the Corinthian people in this church to be truly born again. And let me just tell you why I've come up with that conclusion. If you go back to chapter one of first Corinthians you see how Paul addresses them in his first letter. He says, verse 2, to the church, after he introduces himself and who's writing, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, that's the city, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That means to be set apart. That means to be, to be holy in the sense of God setting you apart. Saints by calling, true believers by calling, with all those who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul, right off the bat, said, I'm addressing you as true believers. I'm addressing you as those who have been sanctified, those who have been set apart, those who are saints by calling. As you go into the second letter, chapter one, he once again affirms that he was writing to them, considering that they were true believers. In Second Corinthians one twenty one, Paul wrote, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. He says, you've been established. You've been anointed. The same thing that has happened to us has happened to you. He considered them established in Christ. In chapter 3, it's very interesting, verses 2 and 3, he says, You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. That is to say that, that you verify our ministry. As people look at your life, they can see the changes, the transformation of character. And they know, they know based on, on reading about you, looking at your lives, that we have a ministry that God has called us to. He says in verse 3, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. You are our letter. If anyone wants to know if my ministry is legitimate, let them look at you. That's what he's saying. 
You're, you're obviously believers in this very chapter, verse 18. He says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. He said, your life is an ongoing transformation. He considered them believers in chapter five. He speaks about the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And in verse 10, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, meaning that you must appear. I must appear. Every believer must appear. All I want you to know is that when Paul thought of the Corinthians, he was not thinking about a people who merely professed to believe, but he was considering that they were truly born again. I would also hasten to add that Paul states that the Corinthians in chapter six, verse one, he states they had received the grace of God, not they had rejected it. Not it was offered to them and they said, no, he said, you have received the grace of God. That's the language reserved for believers. They had received Christ as their savior. They had received the grace of God. And we know from the rest of scripture, very clearly, does the Bible teach that once a person receives the grace of God in Christ for salvation, they are saved eternally because it's not up to us. It's up to him. Many verses affirm that specifically Philippians one. Verse six, that he who who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's very clear. John 10, 28, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall, Jesus said, never, ever perish. Many, many statements. So now where are we so far at this point? All you know and all you should be clear about is that Paul in referring to them as receiving the grace of God in vain was referring to believers. You may not know anything else but he was referring to believers. That should be clear. It may not be clear what he meant by that, but it should be clear that they're believers. It's something then that pertains to genuine Christians, which means that you and I as individuals in Christ and we as a collective body of believers called Lakeside Community Chapel are capable, whatever this is, we're capable of doing exactly what Paul was concerned the Corinthians might do. Receive God's grace in, in a way that is empty and does not produce its intended results. So this is not an evangelistic appeal. This is an appeal to believers, and I want you to know that. This is very important. Now, how do we know what Paul meant by receiving the grace of God in vain? Well, the way you interpret scripture is you deal with the text, you deal with words, you put words together, words have meanings, but also we never divorce a text from its context. The context is the environment that a, that a passage or a verse is found in. What came before? What came after? What's the setting here? What's the environment? What's the context? We know, as I said from our previous studies, that Paul devoted much of chapter 5 to defending himself against false accusations that actually he was insane, that he was irrational. Irrational in his behavior. And let me show you this again. Verse 13 of chapter 5. Paul said, for if we are beside ourselves... It's for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. The false apostles could not understand why Paul, why this man, Paul, would constantly risk his life in serving Christ. They said he's gone mad. It's bizarre. Nobody lives like that. And the reason they said that is because they wouldn't live like that. They didn't live like that. They wouldn't do anything for Christ, let alone abandon themselves in a committed way to him. But Paul did. Why? 
Why did Paul do it and they didn't? And I'll tell you why. Because Paul understood something that the false teachers and something that that a, a false teacher even today doesn't understand. No false teacher understands what Paul understood. He understood the meaning of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. He understood salvation. He understood the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 14 and 15 to say this right after saying, I'm not insane. It may look like that, but I'm not insane. He explains his what appeared to be irrational behavior. He says for and this is his explanation for the love of Christ controls us. It compels me. It drives me. It motivates me. And here's why he made this conclusion about and he's speaking about the love of Christ for him, not his love for Christ, but the love of Christ for him. Here's his conclusion that one died for all, that Jesus Christ died for all, therefore all died. And he said, here's what I have to do with that. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul is saying, you know why I I live the way I do? You know what explains my zeal? You know what defines my life and ministry and why I'm constantly taking risks? And, And even though people are trying to kill me, I just keep going back for more and more because I understand that Jesus died for me. I understand his love for me. I understand salvation by by grace. And his attitude was, since Jesus loved me enough to die for my sins, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. Paul, in essence, is saying I would do anything. That Jesus tells me to do anything. And that's why he explains in the closing verses of chapter five what it is that Jesus told him to do. He gave him the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Jesus told him to do. He said, Paul, I'm setting you aside to go to both Jewish people and Gentile people throughout the Roman Empire to proclaim to them message of how to be reconciled. In other words, he was called to tell people how to be saved. Paul was was basically a church planting evangelist. In fact, he says in verse 20 that he's an ambassador. He represents Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what he did. That's he appealed to the unsaved to be reconciled to God. He told them, that they needed salvation. And, and he didn't just say be reconciled to God. He explains that they were sinners and what Christ had done for them. And the very heart of his message is found in verse 21. This is what Paul told people. and This is what we need to tell people. This is the heart of the gospel. He made him, meaning Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His message is this, though Jesus Christ was sinless, God treated him as a sinner. And because he treated him as a sinner on the cross, he poured out his wrath upon Christ. He punished Christ for all of our sins. He had no sin to be punished. He was punished in our place. He was our substitute. And when we come to Christ for salvation, though we are still sinners, God treats us as if we were righteous because he takes the very righteousness of Christ and places it on our account. That's the gospel. In other words, Jesus was treated as if he committed all of your sins so that God would treat you as if you committed all of his righteous deeds. Folks, that's grace. That's it. That's the grace of God. That's the gospel. That's the true message of salvation. A person is reconciled to God and forgiven of their sins the moment they turn from their sins and place their faith in Christ to forgive them. That's what we're all about. 
That's the simplistic but yet profound gospel of Christ. Our salvation is based solely on the death and merits of the Lord Jesus and not anything that we do. And this is the message that Paul preached. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. That's the message. And though in our study of Second Corinthians, we've moved on to a new chapter. In Paul's mind, he's not, he's not moving on to another chapter. You understand that when Paul wrote his letters, there were no uh, chapter divisions. There were no verse divisions. It'd be like a letter you got, you got today. Uh, later on, we, we put it in categories of chapters and verses to make it easier to, to follow. But in Paul's mind, he's still talking about the subject matter of reconciliation. And that's how we connect chapter 6 with chapter 5. Chapter 6 is a continuation of Paul explaining to the Corinthians the ministry that God had called him to, the ministry of telling people how to be reconciled with the Lord. And here's the key that opens the door to our understanding of the first few verses of this chapter. Listen closely. The subject matter may be similar about reconciliation, even though he doesn't actually mention the word in chapter 6 of reconciliation. He's still on this subject. However, the emphasis in chapter 6 is different than the emphasis in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he spelled out what his ministry was to unbelievers. He appealed to them to be reconciled to God. Chapter 5 is, here's the message. Here's the message I'm called to preach. I tell people to be reconciled to him. I tell unbelievers to be saved. In chapter 6, it's a different emphasis. His concern is that the message of reconciliation not be hindered. Not be hindered. If chapter 5 is saying, here's the message that I preach, in chapter 6, the emphasis is, make sure that this message that I preach and that you preach is not hindered in any way. He's talking about how to hinder the gospel and really how not to hinder the gospel. That's what the opening verses of chapter 6 is about. You and I, you and I are capable of hindering the flow of this gospel. Now, I don't understand how that works within the sovereignty of God, but that's the warning to us. And we're going to look at the very first three verses of this chapter, though we'll only introduce verse three, in which we're going to see that Paul presents two hindrances to the gospel, two hindrances to the gospel. Number one, the first way that the gospel is hindered, which you and I, can be a part of this, and we have to be very, very careful, is this. The gospel is hindered when, number one, God's people fail to appreciate the grace of God. God's people fail to appreciate the grace of God. Verse one, and working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Paul opens this chapter by stating a a profound statement. He, He says something that's so incredible. He says that that. As a messenger and an ambassador of Christ, he was actually working together with God in the great task of declaring the truth of reconciliation. Now, that's an amazing statement because that's true of us. Every time you proclaim the gospel, understand that you're not alone. You may feel alone. You may feel very alone in your office when uh, you've had an opportunity to witness to somebody and they think you're a religious kook, a nut. You're not alone. God working with you, you working with God. Now, it's very interesting. The Greek text actually does not state that Paul was working together with God. In in my translation, the words with him is italicized. It may be in your Bibles, too. Whenever a word or words are italicized in your Bibles, it means that it's not in the original text. It's not in a Greek manuscript, but the translators have added it because it belongs there in terms of of uh, continuity and it, and it makes sense. 
Some people have rejected that and they say that Paul means here he was working with the Corinthians. I'm working together with you. But that's not the case and that doesn't make sense. We know that it's right that he was working with God because of the context. He said in verse 20, he was an ambassador in Christ. And and when he made an appeal, it was God making an appeal through him. That's just that's just what it says. It wouldn't have anything to do with the Corinthians. He was a fellow worker with God. God was the one really making an appeal through him for someone to be reconciled to him. Now, in verse one, his point is this just and watch this just as God used him to appeal to others for their salvation. So now. Now, with believers, God is appealing through him to the Corinthians for their sanctification. Did you get that? In chapter 5, he's saying that as an ambassador in Christ, God appeals through me. Christ makes an appeal for others to be saved. But my ministry to believers like you is that Christ is making an appeal to you, not for salvation because you're already saved. He's making an appeal to be sanctified, to be holy to respond properly to the grace of God. See, when when Paul urges them not to receive the grace of God in vain, he is urging them as those who have already received Christ as their savior, not to falter in their Christian lives, but to live in such a way that reflects an appreciation for the grace shown to them in salvation. That's his point. Now, how do you do that? How do you demonstrate an appreciation for the grace of God? You live the way the Apostle Paul lived. The love of Christ constrains you. You live with total abandonment to the Lord out of out of gratitude, out of a heart of thanksgiving for all that Christ has done for you. Exactly the way Paul lived. I remember the Corinthians had, sadly enough, bought into false teaching and false teaching that accused that accused Paul of being so zealous in his service for Christ that he was mentally unbalanced. And as a result, Paul is forced to to defend himself and explain that he was just driven. He was just compelled. He was a motivated man to live for Christ because he grasped Christ's love for him. In other words, he was a fanatic for Christ. Why? Because he understood the grace of God. That's why he was a fanatic. But the Corinthians had failed it, and, and faltered in their zeal for the Lord because they didn't grasp it like Paul did. They didn't have Paul's fervor for Christ. And, and here's the irony of it. Paul looked like a fanatic to them. Paul looked abnormal to them. But you know what? Paul was normal. They were abnormal. When we read about the Apostle Paul, often we think, what a super guy. What an incredible believer. Listen, Paul's life is the normal Christian life. That's the way we're all supposed to be. That's the way it is, should be for all of us. Anything less than a full commitment to Christ is abnormal. In fact, in fact, in the words of Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul said, I I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, which is your reasonable service to Christ. The word reasonable means logical. It's illogical to not be committed to Christ. If you really understand that Jesus died for you, how can you live any other way but total abandonment and commitment to him? What else would you want to do? Paul's life was the the normal Christian life, the logical Christian life. The Corinthians were abnormal. The way the Corinthians responded to the grace of God was abnormal. And that's what Paul means when he says they received the grace of God in vain. They failed to properly respond to God's grace in salvation. God's grace did not 
get the intended response of commitment to Christ from the Corinthians. And the question we need to ask and answer. One thing to ask a question, but you have to answer it. Why? Why would a whole church flounder in this area? Why would a whole church fail to live a committed life to Christ? Why would that be? And the answer is because they allowed false teachers to undermine their confidence in the sufficiency of Christ's death for them. It's as simple as that. False teachers are still major hindrances to the true gospel today, just as much as they were in the first century. You've been listening to Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you'd like to investigate Lakeside, call 727-441-1714. For more information about Verse by Verse, or to listen again to this broadcast, visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. Our time is up for today, but I hope you'll join us for the next Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve will be considering another potential hindrance to the gospel. It has to do with what we do. We'll be right back. 